This is a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. Good afternoon. This is Earth Matters on The Bigger Picture. I'm Juliet Jacobs. It's International Day for Biological Diversity today, celebrated annually on the 22nd of May to increase understanding and awareness of biodiversity issues. So this year, the theme is, and I'm quoting, from agreement to action, build back biodiversity. This is meant to promote action in support of the Kunming Montreal Global Biodiversity Framework. What is that, you ask? Well, the United Nations Biodiversity Conference, or COP15, ended in Montreal last December with a landmark agreement to guide global action on nature through to 2030. The conclusion of COP15 was the adoption of the Kunming Montreal Global Biodiversity Framework that I mentioned earlier. So the agreement contains global targets to be achieved by 2030 and beyond to safeguard and sustainably use biodiversity while protecting the rights of Indigenous peoples and local communities. Last year on Earth Matters, we did a whole series of on these issues with the good people from Reef Check Malaysia, including Julian Hyde. Uh, we helped to break all of that down, you know, what the 30 by 30 target is, all of that. Uh, and if you'd like to find out more about that, you can search for our Biodiversity for Malaysia series at bfm.my slash earth. You'd also, you can also find that on the BFM app if you'd like to listen to all of those episodes again. Today, though, let's celebrate our incredible biodiversity by visiting some previous Earth Matters shows as well. This time, uh, some that highlighted Malaysia's incredible biodiversity. Malaysia is, of course, recognised as one of the 17 megadiverse countries in the world. We are one of the top biodiversity-rich countries on the planet. So first up, here's an interview I did with Dr. Chen Pelfenyok. She's the president of the Turtle Conservation Society of Malaysia, or TCS. Uh, and here she is discussing Malaysia's freshwater turtles and explaining the rare river terrapins that she studies. Yes, Juliet, um, the river terrapins is a very rare species and they are only found in three countries. You know, compared to green turtles, for example, something that um, mo most people are more uh, uh, familiar with, uh, green turtles are found in more than 80 countries in the world. But the river terrapins are only found in three countries, so very rare. And these three countries are Thailand, Cambodia and Malaysia. Okay, and it was, um, I mean, you were doing research when you realised that these terrapins were actually um, right here in, in about where you are, right, in Trungano. Tell me a little bit about how you discovered it. Oh, I, I totally did not discover the species. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, but yeah. Uh, yeah, it was my uh, former supervisor, a professor in the university. She spearheaded a river terrapin uh, conservation project in Sadiu uh, more than a decade ago. Mm. And at that time, I had just finished my uh, bachelor's degree. And then uh, I approached uh, this uh, professor and I asked her for a job. <laughs> so she then hired me as a research assistant. And then I started helping her with this river therapy and conservation project. And then uh, as time passed by, I developed a master's project out of this uh, therapy and conservation project. And that was uh, how I got started la, working with the river therapies. Okay, and what can you tell us about the river terrapins? I mean, uh, are they endangered? You know, what is special about them? What is the ecology of these river terrapins? Well, river terrapins are critically endangered. Um, they are just one step before they become extinct in the wild. Um, mm. In Malaysia, they are only found in Peninsular Malaysia. They're not found on Borneo. Uh, they are found in three states, uh, and these states are Kedah, Perak, and Trangganu. They have a very long maturation age. 
which means they take up to 20 years to achieve sexual maturity before they can return to lay eggs. Okay. It's two decades, very wow. long, yeah. right? And um, also comparing with green turtles, uh, green turtles lay about 100 eggs each time and they lay multiple times in, in a season, in a year. But uh, these river terrapins, they lay about 25 to 35 eggs each time mm -hmm. and only once in a year. So their productivity is really, really low. Okay. So we don't get a lot of eggs every year. Mm -hmm. okay. Yeah, but oh, similar to, to, to some species of uh, turtles, um, these river terrapins, the gender of the hatchlings, the babies, which we call the hatchlings, mm -hmm. the gender is determined by uh, the incubation temperature. So if we incubate the eggs in, uh, uh, under the hot sun, for example, exposed to the elements, uh, these eggs will produce female hatchlings. Oh, and if we and if we uh, incubate the eggs in a styrofoam box in a shaded area like in our car porch, um, then these eggs will hatch to become male terrapins. That's yeah. so interesting. Yeah, that's very okay. interesting. And one 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 nice way, one easy way to remember this is um hot babes, cool guys. <laughs> yeah, higher temperatures produce females. Lower temperatures produce males. Okay, excellent. And and you mentioned that we're, they're one step away. I mean, they're critically endangered, right? So one step away from... Um, um, extinct in the wild. Extinct in the wild before. And then the final one, of course, is extinct, Extinction, right? right. Yes. yes. Okay, so they are... All right. And what is causing their decline exactly? Um, many factors. You know, we cannot just pinpoint to one factor and say, mm -hmm. oh, this is the one that caused them to become uh, extinct. Or, sure, you know? yeah. um, but many factors putting a lot of pressure onto current populations. Uh, for example, the collection of therapy eggs for consumption. This has happened for so many decades and it is really not sustainable. Imagine they lay only 25 to 35 eggs mm -hmm. and all these eggs are being eaten, right? collected as food. Yeah. Uh, so 20 years later, who's going to hatch, right? These hatchlings, they're not going to hatch from rocks. They're going to hatch from eggs, right? So that, that is one. Um, sometimes uh, local, local villagers, local fishermen, they go to fish in the river, which is not wrong. <laughs> um, yeah. But they put in nets in the river and they don't check them frequently. And these terrapins sweep up and down the river. Sometimes they get caught. And sometimes when they get caught, uh, they cannot surface for air. So they drown. Mm. So that is another factor. Um, sand mining um, activities in, in the river. For example, um, sand is mined from rivers uh, for construction of new highways, new roads, new buildings. Yeah. These sand mining operations drastically change uh, the dynamics of the river. They also completely destroy the nesting banks that the terrapins need to lay eggs. Mm. So without these nesting banks, these terrapins will eventually have to lay eggs in the river. And these eggs that are dropped in the river will not hatch. Right. 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 So it's a, right. it's a chain of events. It's a lot of pressure that we are putting onto the terrapins, mostly man-made. Okay. Yeah. All right. And okay, so those are the sort of all the different factors contributing. Maybe, I mean, since this is a series about how biodiversity loss is our loss, right? Maybe you can help explain their role in the ecosystem and what happens when, you know, the numbers decline and they, they are removed from the ecosystem. Mm -hmm. Right. So imagine this. Um, river terrapins, they plant their own fruit. They grow their own food. So mm. they are amazing seed dispersers. 
So they typically feed on mangrove fruits, mangrove leaves, mangrove shoots that fall onto the river. And when they defecate, these seeds are planted along the rivers. So that means we don't have to organize mangrove planting every month, right? <laughs> right. Because these terrapins grow their own food. So imagine if the terrapins are no longer around, who is going to plant these mangroves along the rivers? Right. And we're not, we're not even, I don't even have to tell you, you know, how important mangroves are, mangrove trees are. They are a sanctuary for small fishes, they prevent erosion. But uh, the river terrapins, they are doing this for us. But that's not something we see, right? Because yeah. we're so privileged, we live in the cities, we don't live by the river, we don't see these things happening. But that, that's one of their uh, major contribution to the ecosystem. Okay. And um, but besides that, uh, river terrapins also help us clean our rivers. Not, not by picking up trash, but they help clean our rivers by um, eating up dead animal material uh, at the bottom of the rivers. For example, dead snails. So they clean this river, they eat all these dead snails up, so the river is clean for our fishes and for our prawns, which we eat eventually. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh -huh. And well, naturally, uh, river terrapin eggs that are laid on the riverbank, these eggs also provide a source of uh, important uh, source of food and protein for other wildlife, uh, such as wild boars, monitor lizards, wild dogs. Well, it's just that um, the population is declining so drastically, we uh, are unable to uh, let these eggs incubate uh, in the riverbank. That is why we collect them and bring them back to the village for uh, incubation. Okay, and I remember speaking to you about this before. Um, the presence of invasive species, that's also a threat to their numbers. Am I correct in saying that? Um, not not so much invasive species. Uh, mm -hmm. invasive species like red ear sliders. Uh, but ah, yes. but yeah, but if we do not relieve red ear sliders, uh, turtles that we can buy from the pet shop into the rivers, then uh, it is not a problem, right? Okay. Yes. Uh, the problem arises when we release red ear sliders into a closed environment like a pond, like a lake, mm -hmm. where these turtles have nowhere to go to. Nowhere else to go to. to. Go to right, uh -huh. right, right. But the river is so long, so wide, right? Mm -hmm. They can swim away when they see uh, other turtles <laughs> that they don't like. <laughs> okay, all right. Okay, excellent. That was Dr. Chen Pelfnyok, President of the Turtle Conservation Society of Malaysia, discussing Malaysia's freshwater turtles, our river terrapins. That was just a snippet of an interview we did last May. So if you'd like to hear that in full, just search for the podcast titled The ABCs of Biodiversity, River Terrapins at bfm.my earth or on the BFM app. We're just going to go for a quick break and then you'll hear more about gibbons and seagrass as we continue to celebrate International Day for Biological Diversity on the show today. Keep it right here on Earth Matter. On the bigger picture, BFM 89.9. Welcome back. This is Earth Matters on The Bigger Picture. I'm Juliet Jacobs. It's the International Day for Biological Diversity today, a day to increase understanding and awareness of biodiversity issues and basically just to celebrate the incredible biodiversity our planet has to offer. So earlier, we revisited an episode from our series, The ABCs of Biodiversity, with Dr. Chen Pelfnyong, the president of the Turtle Conservation Society of Malaysia. We heard more about Malaysia's freshwater turtles and river terrapins. Now I'm going to replay a snippet of an interview that 
that I did with Dr. Gillian Wee. She's a marine ecologist and a senior lecturer at the University of Malaya, and we tackled seagrasses. So seagrasses are the only flowering plants that can live underwater. They are the main diet of dugongs and green turtles. They provide habitat for many smaller marine animals. But as I'm sure you are aware, we are losing seagrasses rapidly and the misconception that seagrasses are inconsequential is further leading to their decline. So here's Dr. Gillian with a 101 on seagrasses. So what are seagrasses? They are marine flowering plants. They look very much like the grass that you see on land, except they grow on the seabed underwater. Um, They photosynthesize. This means that they need to to live in waters that get enough uh, sunlight. So they live in very shallow water as a result of that, you know, from zero meters water depth right down to about 10 meters or even 20 meters if the water is clear enough. Mm -hmm. Um, It's great studying seagrass here in Malaysia because seagrass is uh, here in Malaysia. uh, We are actually at the center of the seagrass hotspot in the world. So that's something that I really like to shout about. Uh, One thing about seagrasses though, if you've heard the term seagrass meadows, well, um, I'd like to explain a little bit about that. When you have an environment where seagrass plants, you know, grow very well, they're very dense and abundant, this collective of seagrass plants make up what we call a seagrass meadow. And if you want to imagine what a seagrass meadow is, think about cowboy country, you know, the cowboys riding their horses in the prairies or the pampas or the savannas. Yeah. Uh, yes, seagrasses growing underwater look pretty much like that kind of a landscape, except that they're all underwater and a little bit difficult for us to access, but really are critically important ecosystems. Mm-hmm. Is it quite likely that, you know, we've encountered seagrasses without even realising that, you know, that was what it was, uh, you know, as we were, uh, you know, on the shores or whatever? I mean, where would we find seagrasses here? Yeah, I think that if you saw seagrasses, you know, most people would actually think that they're something else. They think that they are land plants, you know, and just disregard them as such. So where would you find seagrasses? Well, if you if you were to walk on the beach you would find them washed up on shore as well, you know, if they occur offshore. So we call that seagrass rack. And you would find them lining the shores, you know, they have leaves and flowers, you know, and roots just like your your, uh, grass on land. Um, However, uh, seeing them on lined up on the beach, that's not really attractive because they're all already <laughs> dead or half dead. But what's you know the beauty of seagrass is if you can snorkel or if you dive, uh, and and it doesn't have to be very deep uh, because you can snorkel in water that is like you know waist high, and you can see the beauty of seagrass before you. And even if you don't want to snorkel, let's say if you just don't want to get into the sea, it's still possible to experience the splendor. Uh, and the magnificence of seagrass, because if you just time it right, if you wait for when the tide goes down really low, uh, you can just walk out on them like as though you're, you know, walking out actually in a in on grass on land on a grassy and, meadow, right? Yeah, exactly on a grassy meadow. So so it's uh, the, if you know where to look, it's actually a very accessible and interesting ecosystem to explore. Okay. All right. And I know that I remember in our, some of our conversations that you do a lot of work in Johor, especially, correct? Yes, I do. Uh, for some reason or other, that seems to be the central point, the focus point of seagrasses in Peninsular Malaysia. 
So so that's my favorite place to be in, actually. <laughs> okay. Yes, and I mean I'm very very envious because you get to see like dugongs and things like that. But we'll we'll get to that. Um, let's talk about um uh, the function seagrasses perform. Right. Um, they are known, of course, for providing uh, many ecosystem services. Maybe you can help elaborate. Yes. Uh, yeah. So many ecosystem services, but I think I'll start with the one that's nearest and dearest to the hearts of Malaysians. Malaysians love to eat mm-hmm. and we love seafood, right? Yeah. So uh, so if you love seafood, you know, your crabs, your prawns, <laughs> all manner of fish, uh, then we, you have to start uh, thinking, you know, more about seagrass conservation uh, because seagrasses are actually nursery grounds and feeding grounds for many of the important fish and crustaceans, you know, that we find are a, a key part of the Malaysian cuisine. So, for instance, with our uh, student who studied uh, fish in fish in seagrass and coral reefs in the Johor Islands, she found that actually in the seagrass meadows around Pulau Tinggi, Pulau Sibu, and Pulau Babi Besar, those seagrass meadows had six times more juvenile fish in them than they had adults. This means that those re- they really are the kindergartens of the sea. That's what we are starting to call seagrass now, the kindergartens of the sea. So, uh, so that's why a lot of people think, oh, they're not very interesting fish in there. They're not many things. Yeah, that's because we can't see them. They're all tiny juvenile specks, you know, uh, in the water that you can't really see, but so critically important. So really important as um, feeding and nursery grounds. So if we value our seafood, we've really got to value seagrasses. Apart from that, mm-hmm. they also filter water really well. Um, and this was found out by a group of scientists who went to Sulawesi uh, about a decade ago and went snorkeling in the coral reefs and all came down with really bad diarrhea. Oh, no. and, that, and they realized that that's because they were in the water where there was a lot of sewage flowing out onto the coral reefs. And, and that caused, that made one of the PhD students there to be interested to study the function of seagrasses because she thought, you know, what if the seagrasses can actually moderate the effects of sewage on coral reefs? And what she found was that in, in waters, you know, in coral reefs where you have seagrasses, there's 50% less bacteria and uh, E. coli bacteria that comes from sewage in the water compared to areas without seagrasses. And in areas with seagrasses, you have 50% less prevalence of pathogens, you know, that can cause diseases in corals, fish, and crustaceans. So I think that's an amazing thing. Seagrasses, if you have them there, they give you clean and clear water. That's amazing. Like a, like a first line of defense almost, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. So so I, I my, my mind gets blown every time I think about how this humble plants are doing so much actually for the, for maintaining the biodiversity of our seas. That was Dr. Jidin Wee, a marine ecologist and senior lecturer from the University of Malaya on seagrasses. If you'd like to listen to that interview in full, you just need to search for the ABCs of biodiversity, seagrasses at bfm.my earth. The whole interview is there. I highly recommend you listen to it. But now we want to move on to another conversation I had last year. And this is with Mariani Ramli, the president of the Gibbon Conservation Society. She's also the head director of the Gibbon Rehabilitation Project. And as you guessed it, we were discussing gibbons in Malaysia. Here's a small part of that larger interview we did last year. 
As you know, gibbons are tailors. So primates that don't have tails, we call them apes. And gibbons are apes uh, in the same family with orangutan, gorilla, chimpanzee, and us humans, scientifically. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, you know, because I think they're smaller, they're one of the smallest apes, am I correct? Yes, the smallest ape. Okay, all right. And in total, how many species of gibbons can be found in the wild? Um, all over the world, there are 20 species of gibbons, you know, in Asia. And Malaysia is so lucky we have five gibbon species in our country, three in Peninsula Malaysia and two in Borneo. And from the 20 species of gibbons, we have the biggest gibbons in the world, which is Siamang, inhabit uh, Peninsula Malaysia. Mm-hmm. And we love those gibbons, don't we? And uh, so there are five, and uh, maybe you can uh, walk me through the five that, we, uh, that can be found here in Malaysia. Um, Siamang, uh, as I told you just now, they are in Peninsula Malaysia, like in the, their distribution is in the middle of Peninsula Malaysia. And uh, La Gibbons from uh, Sungai Perak down to um, South Peninsula. And then the Ajal Gibbons is at the northern part. While Funerous Gibbons, the North Bornean Gibbons, uh, can be found in um, Sabah and the uh, border of Sarawak. And Abbot's Gibbons in uh, in Sarawak and Bordeaux of Sabah. Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah. so we've so they're very distinct in that one way. They all gibbons, but they're all very distinct species in that sense. Am yes, I correct? Yes, and actually in the wild in Peninsula, um, Siamang can live together with La Gibbons. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, live uh, share the territory with the La Gibbons, but they they. Um, yeah, Siamang can share territory with La Gibbons and Agile, but Agile and uh, La Gibbons actually cannot get along together. So interesting. Eh? <laughs> yeah. Do we know why? Maybe because of their, not really maybe, because of their diet, you okay. know. Okay. The Siamang can eat like more harder branch, things like that, while La Gibbons and Agile, they f- are almost similar, their diet. Mm-hmm. So okay. they fight for the food. Ah, so they become competitors in yes. that sense. Okay, yes. for the already um, the decreasing space, like de- decreasing habitat, isn't yes. it? Okay, yes. and there's really something very special about gibbons, and that's the way they move, right? Their form of locomotion, which you've spoken to us about. It's called brachiating. Am I pronouncing that correctly? Yes, brachiating. They are the thousand in the jungle. <laughs> I call them always because they are so fast, the fastest primates in the world. And actually, they call, you know, like Tarzan calling, the animals, they call. They have this uh, great call, calling in the morning. Mm-hmm. So for me, they are the Tarzan in the jungle. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And can you talk to us about, you know, the way they move? So they they, nev- they they don't walk on the ground, isn't it? They stay up in the trees all, all the time, isn't that mm-hmm. right? Uh, yeah. The main locomotion for gibbons is brachiating. Mm-hmm. But what they, what makes them similar to us humans is they walk bipedal, two mm-hmm. legs on a long distance. Compared to other primates, uh, especially apes, uh, you see orangutan sometimes they walk two legs, but not in a long distance. Mm-hmm. Whilst orang uh, whilst gibbon they walk long distance uh, bipedal and balancing themselves on the branch, and that's what. But most of it, most of the locomotion they use uh, brachiation, uh, swinging. Swinging, yeah. okay. And they've got very very long arms, isn't it? Yeah, they are the size of the the length of the arms is twice their feet. Twice their feet, wow. Yeah. Okay, that's why they can just swing and that's why they, they're so good at this brachiating and that's their form of movement. Mm-hmm. And are they considered like very strong? Like, you know, you think of like gorillas and orangutans, they're very, very strong sort of uh, apes, isn't it? Is it the same for our gibbons? I would say that they're not as strong as gorilla, orangutan, but they are so agile and they are faster than them. So there are cases where, you know, people seeing, uh, tourists seeing gibbons fighting with orangutan in Indonesia. Even though gibbons are smaller from orangutan, you know, three times smaller, 
but they win the they won the fight oh, wow. because they they quite uh, agile they move fast and yeah okay okay yeah. so the strong little things aren't they yes <laughs> and um you know that their behavior is also something that's very interesting i know like they are monogamous right and i think they're the only apes am i correct in saying that i'm not sure the only apes that are monogamous uh they live in family groups talk to me a little bit about that they live yeah they live in the family groups a nucleus family if we say they are the only monogamous apes i hope human will not be apa <laughs> because human also apes oh, right scientifically so well are we monogamous i don't know okay <laughs> yeah, that's why that's it why some of us some women monogamous so same that's what also actually there are three similarities for gibbons uh from gibbons to human compared to other great apes and which is uh bipedal like i said just now and socially monogamy they rest the they share the responsible of raising a child together father and mother okay. yeah and then they are also the only primates that uh, communicate through vocalization they talk with each other okay so yeah that is that is gibbons and they live in a small family unit uh, maximum only six of them and each uh, inter- the but from one child to another child is around 3 to 4 years so the the parents really focus raising the child before they think about getting another baby wow okay mm. all right and they're considered quite intelligent animals am i correct yes they are really intelligent and there are some study also actually gibbons are almost like orang their iq is almost like orangutan where they can also use tools mm. uh, like chimpanzee also so yeah they are intelligent Okay. intelligent animals. Okay. And um you earlier we were talking about the brachiation and you also mentioned like you know they're like the Tarzan because they also have their songs isn't it um and and that's also a way that they uh you know find and protect their territories as well right is that through their song? Mm-hmm. Yeah they they sing in the morning you know just to mark their territory telling other groups don't come to my house this is the place this is my place to find food mm-hmm, yeah mm-hmm. they mark the territory by singing and that is something very unique about uh gibbons right mm-hmm. it's really really unique <laughs> okay all right excellent and um who would you say are the natural predators of gibbons I and mean, who hunt them if at all if, if uh like i said they are like the fastest primates in the world gibbons are really good you know on trees and there are no mammals as fast as them even though you know the leopard clouded leopard that that can can uh, climb trees mm. unfortunately for gibbons the only of course deforestation habitat loss is their is is their threat and uh, predator in the jungle uh, almost none but uh they are more like being being prey by human for illegal wildlife trade okay. the babies okay. and also some places to eat them bushmeat so the the natural predators are humans i suppose right yeah. <laughs> and they are unfortunately well just looking at the five that we have in in malaysia both uh, east and west malaysia are they considered endangered these five uh, these five different gibbons found in malaysia yeah according to the iucn international conservation uh International Union Conservation for Nature mm-hmm. gibbons are listed as endangered both uh, in uh, Malaysia uh, in Peninsular Malaysia and also in Borneo and there are two more steps to be extinct in the wild okay so the numbers are, and there's i remember us talking about not enough studies being done on their numbers as well so we don't actually have uh, um, reliable figures in that sense right yeah last study been made uh, you know for population this uh, counting for gibbons is around only around 80s 40 years ago oh wow okay um, that, that is that is really really sad because 
for apes, most of uh, the researchers or students will just focus more on orangutan, mm. and they didn't realize that, that gibbons is actually an apes too. So okay. most of the focus goes to orangutan. Okay, all right. But um, they are very vital to the survival of the ecosystem. You know, they provide many uh, ecosystem services. What What would you say is you know what what part do they play in our ecosystem? Why is their loss basically our loss, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I always say they're like they are architects in the jungle. They are the farmers in the jungle. They keep help uh, the forest healthy, the ecosystem healthy. They help plant trees for us for for fruits. They help plant the medicines for us. You know, and uh, I think be if not uh, if we don't have the gibbons in the air, within the area. There will be something missing in the area because some species of trees can only be dispersed by gibbons. Okay. So it's and also I can I just cannot imagine the jungle without the melody of the gibbons. It's going to be really sad. That was Mariani Ramli, the president of the Gibbon Conservation Society of Malaysia. She's also the head director of the Gibbon Rehabilitation Project. That was a snippet of an interview she did last year with us uh, where she discussed gibbons. If you'd like to hear that interview in full, you just need to search for the podcast at bfm.my earth. Just search for the ABCs of Biodiversity. You'll find all three interviews there, including the ones with Pelf and Gillian, and also all the other incredible biodiversity that we featured on the show thus far. There is so much more left to do. I promise I will get on that. But if you miss any part of today's show or any of our previous shows, again, that website to head to is bfm.my. You can also download the podcast on the BFM app. In the meantime, enjoy Malaysia's incredible biodiversity. Go visit you know, some of these organizations or just head out there and you know, take a trip into a little forest anywhere and just revel in the wonders that we have right here in Malaysia. This has been Earth Matters on The Bigger Picture, BFM 89.9. You have been listening to a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. For more stories of the same kind, download the BFM app.